Hello, and thank you for choosing the Crossroads Community Church Podcast, a weekly look a little deeper into the Word of God that inspires us and the teachings that matter to us today by our head pastor, Drew Brown. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe to and share our podcast so that we may further our reach and the ministry of the understanding of God's Word. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. Now let's dive into the Word with Pastor Drew. your hand or ushers will make sure that you get one of those and you might have seen the lady that was standing right here that was uh stephanie young joined us today wasn't it nice to have her sing with us as well zach's much 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 better half is what that is over the years uh, i have worked a variety of jobs and every one of those i think has helped shape me in a unique way My first job came when I was probably maybe seventh or eighth grade, and I began um, working with my brothers in construction. My dad had this idea that he wanted his kids to earn their way through college. Um, And so what he did was every summer he would buy one of these, and you you may not know of these, but they were called Peace Package Homes. You could buy an entire house on a semi, and they'd drop it on the lot, and you would build it. It had everything except for foundation and plumbing. So we would build a house every summer to pay our way through college. Now, some of you are saying, wow, you're a skilled carpenter. (laughs) No, no. I am not a skilled carpenter. I did not become an electrician. I did not know anything about plumbing. You must always work out of your set of gifts. I was the pack mule, right? No brains, just brawn at that point in my life. And I would carry this, and I would clean up this, and I would nail this, and I would paint this. And one of the life lessons I learned in that, those summers of working is you show up early, especially before the hottest part of the day. You learn to work hard because you're not going to finish the house in time if you're not willing to work hard. For me, it was following instructions, even from my two older brothers. And the amazing thing is that you would take pride at the finished product. And and sometimes when I go back to Ohio, I've taken my kids when they're younger. They don't want to go anymore. They've seen the old nostalgic journey. But I'll take them past some of those old houses. And amazingly, they're still standing. People are living in them. And I remember after we would build one of those houses, I would lay there at night and think, did we nail that thing really well? Or did we bolt down that toilet because I had these images of somebody sitting down on a toilet and it going through the floor? I had just sort of crazy and all that. In college, I worked in hospitals and nursing homes, and I was a pre-med student. So it only made sense to me to see how I would adapt to that kind of environment. So I worked in a county hospital beginning in the pathology department. So I drew blood in the laboratory. I got to sit in on a number of surgeries, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I got a taste of what the county morgue was all about. Very humbling indeed. I later worked a night shift at a nursing home, and all these experiences, to me the thing that stood out more than anything was the value of every human being, no matter how old, how young, and the sanctity of life. Everyone has a story, and I remember working in the nursing home, and I worked the night shift, so I would simply change beds, roll patients, really didn't get to know them. So I made it sort of a thing where I went back and I read all the biographies of all of the patients that I cared for. And by the way, I had 50 patients, watch this, 48 women 
two men. Ladies, you kill us. Just saying, just saying. In seminary, I worked as a night watchman, a factory worker, and for UPS. And the workplace is, has provided for me some valuable insights into my own life, and especially into the lives of so many other people, people just like you. For some crazy reason, when I tell that story, people are kind of surprised about all the variety of jobs. It's kind of a jack-of-all-trades and, you know, not very good at any of those things. And some believe that I was born a pastor. And others say to me, you're, you're a pastor? When they meet me and know me. But think about this. 60 to 80% of our waking hours are spent in this activity called work. Work can be at home, but it is still work. Yes, it is hard work to stay at home. And when we're not sleeping, when we're not eating, we're probably working. 60 to 80% of our waking hours of our entire life is spent working. That's a huge amount of time. So I'm going to begin with three questions this morning that we want to ask before talking about the handoff that we want to make. And that's where we're at in this series as we're talking about handing off certain truths, certain core values to those that we love the most, our children, our grandchildren, those that we're mentoring and discipling, those of the next generation. And the reason we're doing this is that we realize that most of us fail to pass on the things that matter most to the people that we love the most, that we're more concerned that we leave them property or finances without ever rehearsing for them what we treasure, what we value, who we are. And I want to try to change that throughout this series. So here's the first question. How can we help those that we love live above what is referred to as the daily grind? You know, you get up, you go to work, you grab a cup of coffee, you go home, you eat supper, you watch some TV, you go to bed, you, go, you get up, you go to work, you have a cup of coffee, and you can't wait for the weekend. That's how most people in the United States live today. Can you imagine what kind of a gift it would be if we could hand off to the next generation so that would not be their experience? Or why are the majority of Americans dissatisfied with their jobs? About 75% of all Americans say they're not satisfied in the workplace. The research says, for the most part, they're bored and unfulfilled, and they see their work as simply a paycheck or a necessary evil. There are exceptions to this, but there are very few people who tomorrow morning will wake up and say, thank God it's Monday, right? Very few will say that. But what if we could transform our thinking a little bit? How can a place where we sp spend the majority of our waking hours be transformed from drudgery into delight. I mean, can you even imagine that? You say that to most people, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is from a guy who works one day a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying this becomes a place where people are dancing around in the hallways and high-fiving each other at work, but this is a place where they genuinely enjoy what they're doing. How novel is that idea? So here's the second transferable concept that I want us to hand off. 
or at least I want us to wrestle with. How are we doing in handing this off when it comes to work? We need to teach the next generation to work for God. We need to teach the next generation to work for God. And this involves something that even most Christians really don't have a good handle on, and that is a theology of work. We usually don't think very clearly, let alone biblically, when it comes to work. Lasting change, though, if we're going to pass it on, begins, as we said last week, lasting change always begins with our thinking. What is your view of work? What is your worldview? What is your perspective in all this? Lasting change always begins with a change in our thinking. We haven't allowed God to redeem our work, though I think he desperately wants to. It might surprise you that work isn't just a necessary evil. Before sin ever entered the world, God instituted work. Check it out, Genesis chapter 2. You've got those Bibles. First book of the Bible, chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 5. God is in the process of creating all that we know as the world in which we live and the cosmos all around us. And we read this in verse 5. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, watch the next phrase, and there was no man to work the ground. If you read Genesis chapter 1 and all the creation, the refrain over and over is, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and then God creates man and he says it is very good. Chapter 2 now focuses a little bit more on the human beings that God creates, though he reiterates and repeats a little bit about the creation of the world. But notice it says there was no man to work the ground. This is the only sense of something that's missing, something that seems to be lacking at this point in all of creation. Then look at verse 15, same chapter. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, Here's his purpose. Here's his calling. Here's what he created him for, to work it and take care of it. Already we see in Genesis that work is not something we choose for ourselves. It is something to which God calls us. It is part of being created in the very image of God himself. Because you cannot read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and not see this activity that our God is involved in, which seems to be this joyful activity because he's constantly speaking into existence and then standing back and saying, hey, this is good. This is good. This is very good. There's a delight in this, his joyful activity called work. One commentator writes, do you realize how intellectually radical this statement was at the time it was written, that God worked, God created, God fashioned? Because in that society, as this was written, gods don't work. It's the activity of slaves. Only slaves work. But that is totally different from what the Bible teaches. The scriptures teach that work is good and work is something that God enjoys. And he calls those who are created in his image to bear that out, to likewise work. So the very first thing we need to notice to remind ourselves to rethink all of this is work is a calling. Someone might ask, what is your vocation? 
You realize the Latin word behind vocation is literally the word calling? Work or a job in the biblical sense is not something we do for money, but it's actually what we are called by God to do. And it was the reformers who recaptured this idea of work as a calling. Martin Luther said that a shoemaker making a shoe for the glory of God, using his skill, is just as holy as a preacher preaching a sermon. In other words, my vocation is not any more spiritual than yours or any more important. It is different, but it's not in any way better than your job, your calling. Both are a calling, and that was Luther's point. God made us and God gifted us differently. And when you do what God has given for you to do for his glory, it is just as holy as what we might call participating in spiritual activities. It is a calling from God. In our day and age, there are usually only two motives for our work. We see it when our kids are heading off to college and our kids ask us, so what should I major in? And usually the response is one of two things. First of all, we'll say, hey, it really doesn't matter what you do. Hey, we just want you to be happy. Mom and I just want you to be happy. We want you to make lots of friends. We want you to, make, we want you to be able to squeeze those four years into six. That's okay. That's okay. We want you to have fun. We want you to enjoy life. Now, that answer isn't not only wise, but it's also not biblical in any way. How much does a 17 or 18-year-old know about what's really going to make them happy, fulfilled, or what is best for them at that age? Or the second response, and, and we are Christians, and so we become a little more sophisticated in the way we communicate this, but the second question is, how well does it pay? I mean, after all, you have to make a good living. I've talked to many guys who talk about going into the ministry and the greatest concern that their parents has, have is, how are you going to be able to make a living? Very interesting. So we communicate to the next generation two terrible things about work. It's either about making a lot of money or being happy. But God says it's about calling. God has a call for what those that you and I love the most should be doing. We need to teach them to work for God, to look at their work from this perspective. It is a calling. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's the summation, that covers everything, do it all for the glory of God. So that brings me to the second piece of this in our thinking. All work is sacred. And my emphasis there is all work is sacred. Because the scriptures lift up all work, even what we call menial work, and dignifies it. All work has dignity because it reflects God. Think about this for a moment. What did God do in creation? He brought order out of chaos for the purpose of his glory and human flourishing. He brings order out of chaos for his perfect purpose.
purpose and will and for all mankind to flourish. So if you're a musician, for instance, what are you doing? Well, you're taking the raw material of sound and you're rearranging it to make something new and beautiful. If you're a businessman, you're taking the raw materials of ideas, concepts, human resources, and you create a product or a service that may not have been there before. Dorothy Sayers writes, Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. I love that definition of work. Work is the gracious expression of the creative energy in all of us for the service of others. So all work, all work reflects the creator God. All work has dignity. It was the writer Carl Henry who said about the reformers that they etched a halo around man's daily labor. They raised it, all labor, no matter how menial, no matter how difficult, no matter how low-paying. All work is sacred. The third thing we need to understand and that we want to hand off is that our work flows from our unique design and purpose. In other words, how has God wired you? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, and we're familiar with verses 8 and 9, so verse 10 is often left off. You know, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's a great word. We are God's workmanship. It is literally the word poem. We are God's poem. We are God's masterpiece. It's the picture of craftsmanship, a tapestry coming together, a cabinet maker or a sculptor doing his best work. That's what you are, God says. You are my masterpiece. I created you with a certain design, a certain purpose, and I stand back and I go, wow, you look good. You are wonderful. You are marvelous in all of my creation. Help your kids or your grandkids, or that man or woman that you're discipling, discover this truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. In other words, Paul says that he understood all of his training, all of the messes that came into his life, all of the difficulties, all the things that God had allowed into his life, every one of them was used by him to create him as the individual that God wanted at that moment that he placed him. I am what I am by the grace of God. And see, sometimes we're saying, I wish I was something else. I wish I was like that person. But Paul understood that we're created with a certain design and a purpose. We are what we are by the grace of God. You and I are one of a kind. And sometimes we say that in a little derogatory term. You are one of a kind, right? But you are. And Paul says in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete, watch, the task the Lord Jesus has given me 
Wouldn't it be great to come to a place in your life to realize as you're in that workplace, as you're ministering, wherever it might be, to say, this is the work that God has given me to do. This is my purpose. This is my design. I am always seeing it. I'm, I'm now finding my way there. But this is what God created me to do and to be. This is the work assigned by Jesus himself. How cool is that? So we hear all that, and we say, so if this is true about work, and that's what work is supposed to be from a theology of work, well, what in the world happened, right? If that's what God meant, what happened? Well, when we rebelled against God, and when sin entered the world, something likewise happened to the gift of work. For work came under a curse. It became a burden, and oftentimes it's distorted. Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall of man, sin entering into the world, and we read, as God says in verse 17 of Genesis 3, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So from the fall came thorns and thistles, frustration and toil. More than that, sin also distorted our relationship to our work. So that work was no longer, as Dorothy Sayers said, about the gracious expression of created energy in the service of others. With the curse, work became something else. We began to look for meaning and purpose, not in our God who created us to work, but watch this. We began to look to our work and others in our work for our meaning and our purpose. Reminds me of that line in Chariots of Fire that the sprinter Harold Abrams says. He says, I run because I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence. That's it. And for some of us, that's our workplace. It justifies our existence. It defines who we are. We've given it that kind of power in our lives. When, you look to our, when we look to our work to give us something that only God can give us, work is no longer just about work. It's about us. And so work, instead of being God-oriented, working for God, is about self-promotion. It's about self-provision. God's not going to provide. i got to make my own living. Self-provision. It's about self-fulfillment. It's about self-justification. And that drive is making our work a mess. Because if work is just about self-provision, then work will just be only about a paycheck to you. There's no dignity to it. There's no meaning. God forbid there's no joy in that. And if work is about self-justification, if it's about creating meaning, 
and building an identity for myself, watch this. If that's where I'm going to find my purpose, my justification for life, or as Abraham says, the very meaning of my existence, guess what I'm going to do? I am going to overwork. I'm going to be a workaholic. I'm going to prove my value. That's where I can do it. We're going to be stressed. We're going to be anxious. We're going to be scared to death at times of that place that we call work. When work is not about you, though, it can take on a completely different perspective. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Here it is. As working for the Lord not for men. You see, the grace of God, when we fully grasp it, not just on Sunday mornings, not just when I sin, not just when I make a mistake, not when I get into an argument, but when we understand the grace of God in our lives, it literally can change our workplace from being a place of burden or a place of significance for us or just a paycheck, and it can turn it into something life-giving. It's a matter of perspective. When we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, it transforms everything, and it changes the way we view our job. It is the redemption of our work. It becomes a way for us to express our love and gratitude toward God. This is how you created me. This is how I'm going to use my gifts. And work becomes for us a place of mission. This one's going to sound strange. A place of worship. And a place of real spiritual transformation. You see, the primary places for spiritual formation are not another class on discipleship. It's not an 18-week course through the Bible. It's not going back to Bible college. The primary place of spiritual formation is in our relationships, primarily at work and in school and at home. I mean, where do you learn patience? Not from a book. You learn it from broken copiers, annoying memos, and unending emails, and the guy with coffee breath, right? That's where you learn it. What do you learn about perseverance? Not from a sermon, for the most part, but from changing diapers, and doing your homework well, and dealing with crying babies. That's where you learn perseverance. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard says, one who does not know this way of job discipleship by experience cannot begin to imagine what release and health and joy there is in it. Job discipleship. To not find your job to be the primary place of discipleship, he says, is to automatically exclude a major part, if not the most, of your waking hours from life with him. In other words, that's why so many of us distinguish our work life from our spiritual life. And in God, there is no distinction. That's why there is so much of a disconnect between Sunday morning and Monday morning. Because a large part of our life, we're not factoring God into this. He says the gospel turns your work into a spiritual formation training center. So what do we need to hand off? Because remember, in the relay race, the exchange 
is the most important part. If we don't pass this baton well, we're in trouble. So let me give you a, a couple of practical points. First of all, teach the next generation to work. Let me add the words, for free. Teach them to work for free. Give your kids, your grandkids, lots of jobs growing up. Help them learn to cook, to take out the trash, to do chores. When they're older, teach them to do your own laundry. Because your job as this generation passing on the baton is to impart and impact. And all the kids just look down the floor at their parents because their parents are now looking at them. Right? And here's the thing for us. It's always easier to do it yourself, isn't it? But they need the opportunity to learn and to fail in a safe way. Growing up, I was the youngest. My responsibility was cut the grass from the time I could uh, handle it. And my dad bought a riding lawnmower. We had a large, large uh, yard. I destroyed two riding lawnmowers, and in the process, the second one I destroyed, I destroyed the side panel of a car. See, I thought if I did enough damage, I'd get out of the work, but he just kept buying more lawnmowers. Help them develop a work ethic. Feed them responsibility. Maturity isn't about age. It's about handling responsibility. There are 35-year-olds who still don't have any responsibility or maturity. Number two, and this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to say today. Teach them to work for an audience of one. Teach them to work for an audience of one. We need to teach the next generation, we all need to learn this, to live life before the face of God. Doing our work before an audience of one changes what we do and how we do it. Living with this mindset helps connect our faith to our work. For we live before the same audience on Monday at work as we do on Sunday at worship. Sometimes I'm afraid we forget that. Again, Dorothy Sayer says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to moral instruction in church attendance. So when the carpenter comes in, the plumber, the doctor, the lawyer, the housewife, what is it? We teach them on moral instruction in church attendance. But she says what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him as a carpenter is that he should make very good tables. Teach them to work for an audience of one. Third, Help them to learn about themselves. Ask our kids from an early age, what do you think you were made to do? How has God wired you? What's your unique shape? We talk about shape when we, in members class. S-H-A-P-E. Can't even spell it. S-H-A-P-E. Spiritual gifts. What are your spiritual gifts? What is your heart? In other words, what's your passion? What do you dream about? What's your aptitude? What are you good at? What is your personality? How are you wired when it, as it relates to people? And the E, experience, what have you done well and enjoyed? That's often a determiner of what really would light your fire in the workplace. And finally, help, you, help the next generation take some risks. Safety is the greatest danger to human achievement. 
I think so many of us are scared to death that our kids might take risks. And I'm, talking, I'm not talking about crazy, you know, but I'm talking about some risks. And sometimes in those, we're going to have to give them a hand in that. We're going to have to encourage them. We're going to have to say, I love you, even when they fail. Sometimes what our, the next generation needs is a good foot in their back to push them. We need to experiment a bit to figure out our calling because it's not about simply earning a living. Too often we think, I am what I do, but rather it is do what you are. So the life message is that you and I were created by God for a unique work. Every single one of us has a calling in our lives. It's kind of funny. Kevin Kim says, you know, Jesus was a king, but he didn't come into the world as a king. He came as a carpenter and a fisherman. And he worked as a teacher and a doctor healing people. He was a social engineer of a new city, and he was an architect of a new temple. He was an advocate and a judge. He was a military general who incidentally didn't call on the army of angels at the moment of his, of his greatest need and weakness. He was a caretaker of children, and he was a writer. We don't know what he wrote in the sand, but I'm sure it was awesome. And he worked as a storyteller and a bellhop because he was always taking people's baggage. He would invite them, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But his greatest work may have been as a prisoner and a convict. They convicted him, and they imprisoned him, and they flogged him and crucified him. He literally worked to his death to give you and me rest. And because of Jesus' work, you and I can work with joy and creativity and meaning and purpose. Whatever your job is, you are called to it by God himself. You're becoming like him, and you're worshiping him. And your greatest work for doing this won't be a huge paycheck or that college acceptance letter or a fat 401k. It won't be some title or position. Your greatest reward for the work that you have done is to stand before your Savior and King someday and hear him say to you, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and you got our attention with this whole topic of work. It can be a struggle at times. And so I pray, Father, that you would just, by your spirit, do something in this, will you please? You know us. You've created us. And you know what we're wrestling with, even as we sit here this morning thinking about this. Some, our tendency is going to just to be blow it off. Got to do this job, don't have any other option. Others of us are going to ponder it a little bit more and invite you in. And to see every aspect of our work as being sacred. Would you just open our hearts up to receiving what you want us to hear, what you want to do? Whisper to us or shout loudly, would you please? Because you've placed us where we are for a purpose. And we ask that you might fulfill that purpose in and through us. 
forgive us for the slight that we have given the workplace that you've entrusted to our care. Give us new eyes, new heart, new perspective, we pray. We ask all these things in Christ's precious and wonderful name.